Thank you very much indeed, uh, Christine. You haven't seen my backhand recently. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to thank uh, Christine for, and her team for once again um, performing wonders in organising this weekend. Uh, they do a really terrific job, and some of you will know not only here, but uh, recently in Madrid, where we had, what, 400-plus alumni? Paris before that, New York, and next spring, Hong Kong. So if any of you have got um, enough air miles um, and want to come to uh, a great city, uh, you'll be very welcome. What do we mean by trust? For that matter, what do we mean by free speech or by British pluralism? These are all contested concepts and rolling them together into the title of a single lecture may at first appear fairly courageous. You may know, particularly if you follow the proceedings of the Public Accounts Committee, that, as Christine reminded you, in addition to being Chancellor of this university, I chair the BBC Trust, the BBC's governing body. I've done so now for just over two years, not, as some seem to suggest, since the beginning of recorded time. <laughs> and it's this occupation that's caused me to think lately about the relationship between trust, free speech, and pluralism. Because the BBC helps free speech and pluralism to flourish in Britain. It provides a model that's envied across the world. In fact, through the World Service and the BBC World News television service, the BBC exports a British form of free speech and pluralism that does much to cement our international reputation as a free society. Uh, so that in 1999, Kofi Annan described the World Service as Britain's greatest gift to the world this century. All of this is rooted in the trust that audiences have in the BBC, both in this country and overseas. Trust in the objectivity and integrity of the output, and particularly in BBC news. But the continued success of the BBC will also depend on public trust in the independence of the institution itself, the values it represents, and the way it's run and governed. Given recent difficulties, we have a job to do to rebuild and sustain that trust. I'd like to spend a bit of time today explaining why I think that's important, not just for the BBC itself, but for the health of our public realm in general. But first, I want to reflect on the value of trust in society in a more general sense. Confucius advised his disciple, Che Kung, that three things were needed for government. They were weapons, food, and trust. The most important of them was trust. Without trust, we cannot stand, Confucius concluded. The history of revolutions and popular uprisings is testament to the fact that bread and weaponry won't always be sufficient 
to keep a regime afloat if public trust is completely lost. As the exiled former king of Romania said at the time of the 1989 revolutions, guns can't crush souls, they can't destroy ideals. Former President Mubarak is one of many who discovered the same thing. In a democracy like ours, the army and police can only go about their business on behalf of the state because collectively we have faith in them and trust them not to abuse their power. And the political process itself relies on our acceptance and understanding that the great majority of individual politicians will act with integrity whether or not we agree with their policies. The importance of trust extends well beyond the political realm. Every day we put trust in our banks to give us credit, or our doctors to look after us, or our neighbours to look out for us. Trust is the most important currency we have as individuals. It also underpins the functioning of those independent institutions of civil society that, in, that indicate the health of any free society. From the trust we place in a jury of our peers in the High Court to our reliance on the governors or the PTA at our children's school. That sort of trust provides for the world outside the state to nurture diverse alternative centers of power, thought, and opinion. It's no coincidence that the totalitarian regimes of the last century sought to dismantle or undermine those sort of independent institutions in universities or churches or the media, just as energetically as they sought to make individuals doubt their neighbors. Doubt and suspicion are as important to the police state as trust is to a well-functioning democracy. As Hannah Arendt put it, the aim of totalitarian education has never been to instill convictions, but to destroy the capacity to form any. It's a concern to any Democrat, therefore, that in the past few years there have been so many crises of trust in our own great institutions. The expenses scandal that caused people to question the integrity of our politicians the financial collapse that caused us to question the wisdom of those running our banks, the Leveson process and the issues it raises still to be pursued in the courts about the behavior both of sections of the press and of the police. And now the NHS is also under fire in Staffordshire and elsewhere for apparent abuses of the trust and goodwill of the public. Perhaps it's no surprise that surveys regularly show we have become a more sceptical nation in recent years, less trusting of all our institutions and of those in public life. The BBC, having been reasonably successful in bucking this trend, now finds itself at the centre of its own storm of criticism. We've had to contend with a grim series of problems from the revelations about Jimmy Savile, to the editorial errors at Newsnight, to failed technology projects, 
and now some unedifying arguments about excessive payoffs to senior executives over the past seven or more years. In each case, we've done our best to uncover the problem, own up to our failings, and put things right for the future. The new Director General, Tony Hall, Keeble, <laughs> and his new team, including James Purnell Balliol, have done a great deal to establish a new way of running the BBC that should remove some of the problems of management culture that were to blame. They've also taken some clear, simple steps to tackle particular problems, most notably by introducing a firm cap on any future severance payments to senior staff. Nevertheless, the events of the past year are clearly a test of the public's trust and faith in the BBC. That's important because we're funded by a form of compulsory tax, or at least it's compulsory if you want to watch television, and most people do. In our view, this is still a better way of funding the BBC than any of the alternatives. It provides a constant impetus to make sure we provide a genuinely universal public service, rather than something that only Oxford alumni wish to watch. And opinion polling shows that active support for this method of funding, which costs 40p a day, is much higher now than it was in the 1980s or 90s, despite the much greater range of choice available in the commercial media market. Even in 2004, only 31% supported the licence fee, and around the same number supported subscription or advertising as alternatives. By 2012, 47% supported the license fee compared to 25% for subscription and 21% for advertising. I'm aware more than most people that the legitimacy of any sort of compulsory household tax, you may remember one, is determined by public support, trust and acceptance. So the trend shown by these figures is encouraging, but we obviously can't afford to be complacent. That's why we were concerned that our measures of, measures of trust fell in the worst weeks of last autumn amidst the Savile revelations, the problems at Newsnight, and the departure of a Director General. And it's why we're relieved that since that time there's been something of a recovery in these scores. When we asked people to score their trust in the BBC on a scale of 1 to 10, the average in 2013 so far has been a score of 6.4 out of 10. That's an improvement on the low of 6 that we saw in autumn 2012 in the midst of the Jimmy Savile revelations. It's still lower than the average of 6.7 that was recorded between January and August 2012 before Savile. And there have been some months in 2013 where scores have dipped again. But it suggests that there's enough stability in our relationship with license fee payers to rebuild, improve and sustain their trust in the future. What lies behind that stability? Our hypothesis is that the everyday experience that people have 
of using and enjoying BBC services outweighs over the long term their specific concerns and questions about individual problems, even when those are very serious. That hypothesis about the long-term view is backed up by a YouGov survey that Peter Kellner wrote up for Prospect magazine in March this year, just as Tony Hall was about to take up his post. It showed that the BBC continues to be well-supported and well-trusted by the public, appearing in fourth place on a list of public institutions in which people in Britain have pride behind only the NHS, the army, and the monarchy, and, you won't be surprised, well ahead of politicians and other forms of media. In fact, even after the problems we had last autumn, only 14% of people in that survey said they were ashamed of the BBC, compared to 38% who said the same about national newspapers, and 37% about, new, about Parliament. It was a survey that the BBC no, made no contribution to, and it was hardly a whitewash. It showed that 65% of people thought it was fair to criticise the BBC for being inefficient, and 59% thought it fair to criticise the response to the Jimmy Savile scandal. Those are criticisms that we're responding to, but it's reassuring to be able to do so knowing that we have a strong core of public support. So why do people trust the BBC? What do they mean when they use that word trust? And what might we do to sustain that trust in future? I think there are two particularly important dimensions to public trust in the BBC. Firstly, the faith they have above all else in the BBC as a source of accurate news and information. And I want to talk about how I think this relationship with BBC News ties into the ongoing policy debates about media plurality and free speech. Secondly, the affection and pride that they feel for the BBC as a national institution. And I'm going to say something about how I think the BBC needs to build on those feelings and on that sense of public ownership to help sustain British pluralism. After that, I want to say a few things about how the BBC is run and governed, how that relates to public trust, and the lessons we've drawn from the experience of the past few weeks and months. Our audience research suggests that corporate issues about the management of the BBC are not what people think of first when they're asked whether they trust the corporation. Management can become the issue at a time of crisis when people begin to focus less on BBC output and more on the behaviour of those leading the organisation. And more generally, people want to be reassured that any egregious errors or issues of concern are being dealt with, for instance, around the salaries of senior managers or star presenters. But for the great majority of the time, it's the quality of the BBC's output and particularly its news services, that is at the front of their minds. These may be obvious points, but I think they do need restating. Following the example set by Lord Reith, we need to overestimate rather than underestimate 
the intelligence of the so-called average license fee payer. And that includes recognising the sophistication with which they understand and analyse the modern news media. Those of us who inhabit a a London media bubble of 24-hour news need always to be careful not to get overly obsessed with the sort of narrow conversation that takes place between organisations like the BBC, newspaper editors and Westminster politicians. We need to think about what it looks like to the public outside and to focus on what they care about. Overwhelmingly, people continue to distinguish between the level of trust they put in television and radio and their view of newer social media or of newspapers, which they understand to be more partial. We published some figures in May this year showing that when asked which one source of news people trust the most, 58% cited the BBC News, that compared to 14% for ITV and 6% for Sky. (laughs) National newspapers scored combined 6%, with no single national newspaper scoring more than 2%. That was not widely reported in the newspapers. (laughs) Again, this should really surprise no one. Newspapers are more partial. It means they do less well in this kind of survey. They mostly represent a particular point of view. It's one of the important elements of free speech that everyone agrees needs to be protected in the debate around the Leveson process. It's also, I suggest, one fairly obvious explanation for the continuing popularity and success of BBC News. Just to give you one fairly startling statistic, BBC News produces 25% of all television news minutes, but attracts 73% of viewing. Levels of popularity that move me to question those who accuse it of some form of inherent political bias. Do viewers choose to watch the BBC because they think it's biased? That's an absurd argument that's highly critical of the public's intelligence. All this research highlights an obvious point that some of the commentary on media plurality often obscures that the BBC is in a different category of news provider when it's compared in particular to newspapers but also to other commercial outlets. In a way, the press reporting of the plurality debate itself makes this point. To a large degree, newspapers report government reports on measuring plurality in terms of an attempt to cut the BBC down to size. I'm paraphrasing slightly but only slightly. The corporate interests of the newspapers are pretty clearly reflected in their coverage. Well, that's life. It makes perfect commercial sense for the Times to argue in its editorial column that the licence fee should be cut in half. If I were Rupert Murdoch, I might well argue the same. Although Peter Kellner's analysis suggests that that isn't what the majority of the public want. 
In his survey, 48% said the license fee was good value for money, against 31% who who thought it was bad value for money. And 55% thought the BBC should continue to broadcast the current range of programmes, against 33% who thought it should focus more narrowly on the kinds of programmes that other broadcasters don't provide. Of course, the government's approach is a good deal more sophisticated and rightly looks to identify, understand and account for what's different about the BBC in the way it's established, funded and regulated. It's very important to acknowledge those differences before jumping to any conclusions that because BBC News is big and successful, it ought automatically to be reduced in size. That would seem completely perverse particularly since some of the BBC's success is based on providing the sort of news services that no one else offers, on local radio, for example, or to young people via Radio 1's Newsbeat. I should say in passing that I'm not myself convinced that any kind of punitive attempt to cap or reduce market share is a sensible approach to the regulation of successful commercial media organisations either. A free press is absolutely crucial, not least in doing some of the things that impartial broadcasters cannot or would not do. I've argued before that there's a kind of symbiosis between the BBC and the press who do different but complementary things. The press give us a style of opinionated and campaigning journalism that we all want and need, and we're free to choose whatever flavour of it we want. If you want to read Quentin Letts, if you want to read Simon Jenkins, then so be it. And the public seems to understand and to welcome the differences. I believe that a large-scale provider of free, impartial news still makes an overwhelmingly positive contribution to free speech and plurality, alongside what's available from the commercial marketplace. And for as long as the BBC exists, news will be central to its mission on all media. I don't think that the growth of digital or online media changes that fundamental mission to provide free news and information. Not least since the dividing lines between new and old media have now almost completely dissolved. In a few years, people are just as likely to consume BBC News online by watching the main bulletins on their iPad as they are to read through pages of text on the front page of the news website. I tend to think that the BBC's contribution to the public realm and to public debate may be increasingly important over time if it's true that people use technology increasingly to filter out news, information and opinions that they don't like or understand. Ellie Pariser, who coined the term filter bubble, explained his concept by saying that more and more your computer monitor is a kind of one-way mirror reflecting your own interests while algorithmic observers watch what you click. In other words, you might never need to challenge your existing assumptions and opinions. 
I think that's a dangerous state of affairs for a democratic society, making it all the more important that some news organisations exist like the BBC with the scale and the commitment to impartiality and exposing a range of opinions that can burst the filter bubble from time to time. The other striking thing about the public's relationship with the BBC is the extent to which people feel an emotional and familial attachment to it. I've been very struck by this uh, since I've been chairman of the Trust. When I visited the set of the Antiques Roadshow, um, an experience that I'd recommend to anyone, particularly if you've got something old and you think precious in the attic, it was clear that uh, all the crowds gathered there felt a sense of ownership of the show and of its history. I imagine this applies equally to devotees of other great programmes, from Match of the Day to Desert Island Discs to In Our Time. I remain of the view that the fact that every Thursday morning at two minutes past nine, two million people turn on Radio 4 to listen to Melvin Bragg, Wadham, <laughs> explaining string theory or quantum mechanics or the role of Pascal, um, says remarkable things about this country and perhaps explains the existence of the BBC. There's a warmth of feeling and attachment based on long years of experience and entertainment that's rather different from the relationship that people say they have with other well-respected institutions and public services like the NHS or the police. And I think it's because there's an emotional side to the relationship people have with the corporation that there was such a sharp public reaction and sense of hurt and alarm when the Savile revelations broke. For some people, childhood memories and lifelong attachments were put at stake. We need, of course, to learn specific lessons from the events of the past year to build a strong BBC for the future. In the longer term, we also need to make sure we protect what's been special about the BBC's relationship with the public down the decades. It has to remain relevant to the whole population. That means getting people enough distinctive content that they want to watch or listen to so that they spend a good deal of time with the BBC. And it means continuing to bring the population together to share in major collective events and experiences. The BBC has a number of missions that can never be perfectly achieved, but which it must always strive to deliver. One of those is to be impartial. Another is to marry great popular successes with new and challenging ideas. But the hardest of all, perhaps, is the mission to provide a universal service. In the past, that was an editorial challenge, serving all parts of the audience in different ways with different services. It was also an engineering challenge, investing in the necessary transmitters and the right broadcasting technologies. Today, it's also a commercial challenge. 
requiring the BBC to strike the right distribution and syndication deals on the right terms with the right platforms. From the manufacturers of smart TVs like Samsung to the existing television platforms like Sky to the giant companies like Google and Apple who are busy trying to develop their own version of internet television. Just taking the editorial dimension for starters, achieving universality is arguably more challenging than ever in a society that's changing rapidly and becoming more and more diverse. The population is becoming simultaneously both younger, given the recent baby boom, and older. A quarter of the population is projected to be over 65 by 2021. Even in London, uh, in the space of the past 10 years, there's been a striking increase in diversity. In the 2001 census, 60% of the population was classified in London as white British. By 2011, that had fallen to 45%. So there are clear creative challenges in addressing all the different parts of this audience. And the, never, and the BBC has never, in my judgment, been as brilliant as it could be in reaching all parts of the audience. A great deal has been done in the past few years with the encouragement of the BBC Trust to do something about what's historically been perceived as a bias towards the metropolis, which, as I've just pointed out, is changing rapidly. Anthony King's review of BBC reporting on the devolved nations has produced notable improvements in the accuracy with which the complicated realities of devolution are described. A great deal of production has been moved outside London, notably to new centres in Glasgow and Salford. In BBC drama in particular, there's been a new, renewed emphasis on portraying a range of places and communities outside South East England, notable exceptions in the past year have included Shetland and Belfast. Nevertheless, in our annual survey of audience opinion, it's notable that people in the southern half of England still give consistently higher approval scores than those in the north. The digital world adds to the challenge. It tends to promote and encourage fragmented and individual experiences rather than collective endeavour. The pluralism of our society depends on diversity. It thrives on it. But it also depends on dialogue and on the sharing and exchange of views and experiences between different groups in society. There are increasingly few shared public spaces in which those exchanges can take place. But the BBC is one of them. In building and developing its digital services, therefore, the BBC needs to avoid becoming too tightly focused on a small group of more affluent enthusiasts. And it needs to avoid using its technology simply to give people what they already know they want. It needs to find ways of bringing people to new content and new ideas, of creating shared experiences as much as individual ones.
exactly what it's been so successful at doing in the traditional world of analogue broadcasting. And it needs to do so in an inclusive fashion, extending and extolling the benefits of new technology to as many licence fee payers as possible. I'm confident that we can get that right, particularly given the calibre of those at the top of the organisation. It's the same mission to inform, educate and entertain, updated for a new set of circumstances. And if we can get it right, we'll be able to build the same degree of trust, affection and familiarity and pride among young people today as that which exists among people of my own generation, and I think British pluralism will be the winner. But what we must never do is to take this for granted. A further complication, and it's an issue which I think is hugely important, a further complication is the need to maintain free and open routes to public service content as the industry evolves. The success of the BBC and of other public service broadcasters depends on their continued relevance for audiences. And to be relevant, they need to be prominent and easy to find and use on all the different digital platforms and devices that are now emerging. At present, that's achieved by the simple trick of putting the free-to-air channels right at the top of what's called the Electronic Programme Guide. The list you see when you turn on your TV or your set-top box. In future, however, that simplicity will be complicated by the range of different devices that are coming onto the market that all present their menus or home pages, search engines or lists of favourites in different ways. The existing public service providers of original UK content are mismatched in any contest with the new global media giants. The disposable incomes of Google or Apple or Samsung dwarf the spending power of the BBC or ITV or Channel 4. But it's those global companies who will seek to gain control of the everyday experience you have of watching television and how you pay for it just in the way that iTunes is now the way that many people buy and listen to music. To avoid becoming irrelevant, the BBC will need to make sure its content and its digital services are so good that they can't be ignored by anyone trying to make a success of a new TV platform. So good that the BBC is strong enough to insist that they're not put behind a paywall but can always be found on a universal, free-to-air basis. As things stand, the iPlayer is in that must-have category, but the BBC will need to constantly innovate if it's to keep pace. It may also need some form of regulatory protection. That's why we welcome the steps the government's taking to ensure prominence for public service broadcasters on new platforms and to stop, stop platform operators charging public service providers for access to their content. 
A strong BBC can provide a boost to British pluralism if we get our strategy right and if we get the right sort of support from the government. And when Tony Hall sets out his thinking about future strategy next month, he'll talk some more about how the BBC can keep innovating, where it can be more creative and distinctive, where it can build partnerships with other great British cultural institutions, as it's already done with the British Museum and with the Arts Council, and how it can meet the audience challenge of universality. From the discussions I've had so far with him, I think this points to a really bright future. That's important if we're to move on from recent problems. But I just want to finish today briefly by saying something uh, rather quickly, as I said, about the governance and management of the BBC. First, to put things in context, although it's obvious from the events of the past year that the BBC could let me understate the point, be run better. <laughs> and it's fa in fact, it's now already obviously being run better by the new DG. I was interested to see the study of British social attitudes recently, nothing to do with the BBC, which still puts the BBC near the top of the list of well-run organisations over the past three years. I guess if the competition's Barclays Bank or the Royal Bank of Scotland. That's understandable. 63% of people in 2012 said the BBC was well run, compared to 58% who said the NHS was well run, or 19% who said the same about the banks. Where did they find 19%? <laughs> to some extent, as I've argued in this lecture, I expect this betrays a lack of interest in the detail of BBC management and governance dramas. I think the problems about severance pay and the disagreements we've had about different versions of events are probably in themselves not going to affect these sort of statistics very much, provided we fix the core issue of overpayment. But they do present a different problem of trust. If by failing to deal with uh, problems and criticism we lose the trust of the political classes, there's a longer-term risk that we may lose the ability to govern the BBC independently and protect it from any political interference. So far in the last 12 months, the BBC has appeared before parliamentary select committees 16 times. Lord Reith would have been spinning in his grave. There's a value, as the media commentator Ray Snoddy has said, in a diversification of centres of power and, above all else, diversity of opinion on subject matters, subjective matters, such as freedom of expression. The BBC needs to have a system of governance that provides for objective scrutiny of its performance and behaviour without drawing it further towards the control of politicians and the state. It won't be up to me to decide what the future governance model of the BBC should be. That is a matter for ministers. But I do want to do my utmost to make the existing system work. It's clear that it hasn't always been as clear and unambiguous as it could have been in the past. Sometimes the problem has, I think, been largely that it's tried to do what the Chartered drawn up by Parliament said it should do. 
But often the success of any system is as much about the individuals running it and their relationships with one another as it is about how the structure looks on paper. I would say that, wouldn't I, having worked five years in Brussels. With a new team at the top of the BBC executive, I am very confident that we can improve both the structure we've got and the way we make it work, at least for the next three years. The press are extremely quick to offer judgments on the correct system of BBC government governance, even while they seem to have taken their time to be polite, to agree on their own system of self-regulation. No governance system can prevent things going wrong. Certainly the old board of BBC governors saw plenty of crises. The creation of the BBC Trust was an attempt to separate the job of setting strategic direction from the detailed day-to-day operation of the BBC. The experience of things going wrong around executive payoffs suggests that there's still too much potential for a confusion of responsibilities between the Trust and the BBC's executive board. In my experience, it's often the way that people work together in any structure that's as important to success as the structure itself. I have a huge amount of trust and confidence in Tony Hall, and we're both convinced that we can improve the way we use this governance system, and we hope to be in a position to say how we might do that by Christmas. For the sake of all the important principles that I've talked about today, public trust in the BBC, its strength and independence, we do need to get this right. I think the BBC is an important part of our democracy. I think it's an important part of the civic humanism of this country, uh, and I want to see it continue to flourish in a new age. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to take questions.